Hey there, guys. Brian Cohn here, the voice of the EMJ Club podcast. Some of you may have noticed that we've been on a bit of a hiatus the last several months, and that's because I've been pursuing my second career, which is writing novels. My first book is already out. It's called The Last Detective, and it is available on Amazon. You've got to search for The Last Detective, Brian Cohn, and you will find it. Now, with that bit of self-promotion out of the way, welcome back to the Washington University Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast, May 2017. The topic that I chose for the May Journal Club was one that we had actually covered before back in 2012, pretty soon after I took over the Journal Club. The question that I had at that time was for patients taking warfarin who had minor head injuries and had a normal initial head CT, uh, what did you need to do with those people? What was their risk of having a delayed intracranial hemorrhage? Should they be admitted for observation? Should they have routine repeat CT scans at 6, 12, 24 hours? Uh, over the years, I've seen different practice patterns. Uh, we have some trauma surgeons who routinely admit these people to watch them, some who like to keep them in the ER and repeat their head CTs at six hours later. Uh, none of that's really truly evidence-based, uh, at least based on the information that we looked at in 2012. At that time, we managed to get together a review article entitled, Can Anticoagulated Patients Be Discharged Home Safely from the Emergency Department After Minor Head Injury? Uh, that was published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine, and it basically looked at the articles that we looked at at the Journal Club. The conclusions then were that the evidence was a bit all over the place, and that whatever you decided to do, as long as you were safe and careful and gave your patients good discharge instructions, uh, or discussed with them the plan to admit them and watch them, uh, that the evidence would support you either way. So I wanted to take a look back and see, A, was there any new evidence that had come out in that time period, and B, and more importantly, was there any evidence looking at this question in patients on novel anticoagulants? We're seeing fewer and fewer patients on Coumadin, more and more patients on Rivaroxaban, Apixaban, Dibigatrin. So wanted to look and see if there was any evidence on this topic for patients taking those agents. Unfortunately, I could not find much on the newer novel anticoagulants. Most of the data out there is still related to Coumadin warfarin use. So that's what we ended up with. But in addition to the articles that we looked at at that time, I did find one new retrospective observational study from Kaiser Permanente uh, out of California that looked at this subject, and then a systematic review and meta-analysis. So in the end, it was worth looking back at the data. So we're going to talk about two of the original studies that were published uh, back in 2012, as well as this new retrospective study and the meta-analysis. We'll start with an article that was published in 2012 in Annals of Emergency Medicine by Mendito et al. entitled, Management of Minor Head Injury in Patients Receiving Oral Anticoagulant Therapy, a Prospective Study of a 24-Hour Observational Protocol. So what these guys did was they took all patients presenting to a single level 2 trauma center in Ancona, Italy, between 2007 and 2010, who were 14 years of age or older with a minor head injury, a Glasgow coma scale of 14 to 15, who were on oral anticoagulation. They were included regardless of the presence or absence of loss of consciousness. All of these patients who had an initial negative head CT were then admitted to their ED observation unit for 24 hours, at which time 
by protocol, a second CT scan was performed. So this wasn't just observation for new symptoms. This was observation and repeat CT scanning, regardless of how the patient did. Out of 116 patients on anticoagulation with a head injury during the time period, they found 97 patients with a normal initial CT scan. 10 of those patients refused the second CT, so only 87 patients were observed according to their protocol. Out of those 87 patients, 5 of them, or 6%, had an intracranial hemorrhage noted on their 24-hour head CT. The 95% confidence interval for that is 1% to 11%. Now, only one of those patients, or a total of 1% of the 87-patient cohort, required any kind of neurosurgical intervention for their intracranial hemorrhage. Interestingly, there were also two additional subdural hemorrhages that were found after the patients were discharged following their 24-hour normal head CT. Uh, those patients came back two days and eight days later, uh, one with confusion, the second with just a headache. So they looked at predictors of delayed intracranial hemorrhage, and the only real predictor they found was an INR greater than or equal to 3, uh, which conferred a relative risk of 14. So pretty significant increase in your risk if you have an INR greater than or equal to 3. Now what the authors conclude based on this is that their data support the effectiveness of the European Federation of Neurological Society's recommendations that patients on anticoagulation with a head injury receive 24 hours of observation and a repeat head CT scan. Now interestingly there was an editorial published in the same issue of Annals by Lee et al that looked at the cost using this data to prevent one death. And they found that that cost would be $1 million US to prevent one death based on the data provided in this article. So 6% risk of delayed intracranial hemorrhage, but only one of those patients, 1% of the total cohort, ended up requiring any kind of intervention with a cost to observe and repeat CT scans on all of those patients of about $1 million. Now, the second study published in that same issue of Annals was immediate and delayed traumatic intracranial hemorrhage in patients with head trauma and pre-injury warfarin or clopidogrel use by Nishijima et al. This was a prospective study conducted at six hospitals in Northern California between April 2009 and January 2011. They only included adult patients aged 18 year or older with blunt head injury and warfarin or clopidogrel use within the previous seven days. So they were looking at more than just warfarin use. Patients were included regardless of loss of consciousness or amnesia. Unlike in the previous study, CT scans were obtained at the discretion of the treating physician. So this was not one of those keep them and routinely repeat their CT scans. They enrolled 1,101 patients during the study period and found that the prevalence of an immediate intracranial hemorrhage in patients taking clopidogrel was 12%, while the rate of intracranial hemorrhage on the initial CT in patients taking warfarin was only 5.1%. A little bit surprising. More than double the rate of intracranial hemorrhage in patients taking Plavix. We don't always think of that as a big risk factor, but it looks like it is. Now, the frequency of delayed intracranial hemorrhage among those with a normal initial CT scan was only 0.6% in patients receiving warfarin with a 95% confidence interval from 0.2% to 1.5%. And the risk was 0% in patients taking clopidogrel, 95% confidence interval 0% to 1.5%. 
So 0.6% risk of delayed intracranial hemorrhage in these patients compared with the 6% risk seen in that first study. Now that was four patients in the warfarin group with delayed intracranial hemorrhage after a normal initial CT scan. Two of them died and the other two required no neurosurgical intervention. Now it's unclear if those two patients required any reversal of anticoagulation or if they had their warfarin held, if there were other interventions that were undertaken other than strict neurosurgical interventions. So one question that arises is why such a lower rate of delayed intracranial hemorrhage in this study? Now it may be that patients in this study didn't undergo routine repeat CT scans. They only had a repeat CT scan if they developed some concerning symptom, if they came back with some concerning symptom. So maybe there were a handful of delayed intracranial hemorrhages that simply were missed and didn't cause any adverse outcomes. I would argue that those delayed intracranial hemorrhages we probably don't care too much about if they're not causing any problems and they're not causing death. Unlike the authors of the initial study, these authors concluded that delayed traumatic intracranial hemorrhage was rare and it occurred only in patients receiving warfarin. They say that discharging patients who are on an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet medication from the ED after a normal initial cranial CT scan is reasonable as long as appropriate instructions are given because of the risk of delayed traumatic intracranial hemorrhage. I think that's reasonable. I don't think you have to admit all of these people, at least based on this study. I certainly don't think you have to routinely repeat their head CTs. So two studies from the same issue of annals, differing results, differing conclusions, and we're left scratching our heads. Unfortunately, since then, there hasn't been a ton of new data, uh, but we're going to look at the best study that has come out since then that I could find, along with a meta-analysis that has also come out. In 2016, Swap et al. published Risk of Delayed Intracerebral Hemorrhage in Anticoagulated Patients After Minor Head Injury, the Role of Repeat Cranial Computed Tomography. This came out in the Permanente Journal. So this was a Kaiser Permanente study. They published it in their own journal. So just take that with a big grain of salt. This was a retrospective observational study conducted at 13 community EDs in the Kaiser Permanente Southern California system between 2007 and 2011. Patients with head injury who were on warfarin and they had to have an INR of at least 1.2 or higher on the day of the visit or were on clopidogrel were eligible for inclusion and they only included patients with an initially normal head CT. Now out of the subjects they initially identified, almost half were excluded due to incomplete data right off the bat, which is not a good sign. They had 491 eligible ED encounters with full data. Of these, 290 were on clopidogrel, 210 were on warfarin, and 443 of them had an initial negative head CT. 31% of those patients underwent a repeat CT during the study period with a median follow-up time of one day. So as in the last study, not everyone got a repeat head CT. It was at the discretion of the treating physician. Only those patients who had concerning signs or symptoms ended up getting a repeat head CT. They found that delayed intracranial hemorrhage was observed in 11 of the 433 patients, 2.5% with a 95% confidence interval of 1.4 to 4.4%. Now for patients taking warfarin, the delayed risk of intracranial hemorrhage was 2.7%, while for those taking clopidogrel, the risk was 2.3%. Four of those 11 patients with delayed intracranial hemorrhage died, unfortunately, as a result of their intracranial hemorrhage. That is 0.9% of the total included cohort. So as I mentioned, specifically for patients on warfarin, the risk was 2.7%. 
which falls nicely in between the 0.6% in the Nishijima study and the 6% seen in the Medito study. Now it should be noted that they looked at outcomes out to 60 days. So for the five patients on warfarin who had a delayed intracranial hemorrhage, only three of them happened within the first 24 hours. Uh, one of them was caught a little over 24 hours later. The other was caught eight days later. So even if you admitted these people, watched them for 24 hours, you might still miss their delayed intracranial hemorrhage. So finally, hoping to get a little more clarity on this subject, we found a meta-analysis and systematic review entitled Risk of Delayed Intracranial Hemorrhage in Anticoagulated Patients with Mild Traumatic Brain Injury, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This is from the Journal of Emergency Medicine, 2016. Now, these guys did a pretty good literature search. Uh, they looked at Embase, Medline, the Cochrane Library, the gray literature using this open sigil, the New York Academy of Medicine, graylit.org, and Google Scholar. They looked at the reference lists of eligible articles and tried to find additional relevant publications. It doesn't look like they looked at conference abstracts, which is a bit of a problem, as you run the risk of missing some unpublished studies by not doing so. But overall, I'd say they did a pretty good job searching the literature. They included seven studies in their final analysis, representing a total of 1,594 patients. Now, these were patients on a vitamin K antagonist, so primarily warfarin, with head injury and a normal initial head CT. They weren't looking at novel anticoagulants. They weren't looking at clopidogrel. They used this Newcastle-Ottawa scale to assess the quality of these studies, and that includes three components, which is cohort selection, comparability of cases and controls, and exposure. And overall, they found that these studies were of moderate quality at best. So not the best studies. They were all observational. Three of them were prospective, but four of them were retrospective. Not great evidence, but kind of the best evidence we got. And in pooling their data, they found that signs of delayed intracranial hemorrhage within 24 hours, so again, within 24 hours, not looking out to 60 days, uh, were observed in 14 of 1,594 patients, 0.6% just like the Nishijima study, with a 95% confidence interval from 0 to 1.2%. And of those 14 patients, only one required surgical intervention, and one died from the injury, for a risk of 0.13% for neurosurgical intervention or death, with a 95% confidence interval from 0.02% to 0.45%. So pretty darn low. Now, these studies were fairly heterogeneous, meaning their results were a little bit all over the place. Not too surprising given the results we saw from the studies we specifically looked at, 0.6% risk in the Nishijima study up to 6% risk in the Mendito study. So a fair amount of heterogeneity, uh, but still probably worthwhile to combine these results and give us a meta-analysis. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with this information? I, I think like so many other things, it comes down to a balance between risk and cost. You know, we can't admit everybody for 24 hours and repeat their head CTs. The cost is simply too high. At the same time, we don't want to send somebody home with a potentially dangerous thing going on in their brain that's going to pop up in a few days and kill them or require them to have a neurosurgical intervention. I'm still of the opinion that it is safe to send these people home after the initial head CT, assuming that they're reliable, that they have access to a phone, they can call 911 if anything gets worse. Um, and more importantly for me, I like to make sure that they have somebody there to watch them. I don't send the elderly patient home who lives alone, who had a fall and is on an anticoagulant. I watch those people, or at least I offer to watch them. 
Again, shared decision-making uh, is such a key component of care these days that you can at least discuss it with your patient. And if you're going to send them home, probably best to discuss it with them as well. Say, listen, your risk is low, somewhere around 0.6%, maybe a little bit higher based on some of the other studies, but it's certainly low. If you'd like to be watched for 24 hours, maybe we can consider doing that if you've got an observation unit or if you've got a trauma unit that is willing to admit these patients. But otherwise, it's probably safe to go home as long as you've got someone there to keep an eye on you and a way of calling 911 if anything gets worse. Other caveats there being patients with significantly elevated INRs. As we saw in the one study, an INR of three or more confers much higher risk of having a delayed bleed. Maybe those patients you do want to offer admission. As in so much of medicine, there are no real definitive answers here. You have to look at each patient individually. Age, reliability, having somebody there to help watch them, their INR, the mechanism of injury, and how they look in front of you right at this moment. If they have a negative head CT but their GCS is 14 or 13, you're probably not going to send that person home. As I said, not a definitive answer, but at least now you have the data and you can discuss this with your patients in an intelligent manner. So, as usual, thank you guys for joining me. And again, one more little bit of self-promotion. Don't forget, check out my book. It's The Last Detective. It's a sci-fi mystery. If you're interested, it's on Amazon. If you do buy a copy and read it, let me know what you think about it. I'd love to hear from you. Hopefully no more long hiatuses from doing the podcast in the near future. I hope to see you guys back next time. (laughs) 